You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Welcome to today's symposium on uh, the heritage of Russian architecture and art. It's uh, wonderful to see uh, such a, a good turnout, even on a beautiful day for an event like this, dedicated to a really rich and, and fascinating subject. My name is Michael Biggins, and I'm the Slavic, Baltic, and East European Studies Librarian at the uh, University of Washington and an affiliate faculty member in the UW Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures. I am uh, personally very grateful uh, both to our featured speaker today and our four UW and local expert discussants for being here to pool their knowledge of built environments and community, the history of the Russian North, the Eastern Orthodox tradition in art, and of course, Russian architectural history to illuminate various aspects of our subject today. I'll introduce our four discussants later, but now let me first turn to our featured speaker. Fifty years ago, in the English-speaking world, the whole concept of Russian architecture began with the clock tower and crenellated walls of the Kremlin in Moscow and ended with the colorful, asymmetrical and curiously textured onion domes of St. Basil's Cathedral, scarcely a few hundred meters away. Uh, spanning the distance of just a few hundred meters, and uh, a few, few hundred meters in a country that occupied and still occupies one-sixth of the Earth's land mass. If our knowledge of what was clearly a very different, if not to say extravagantly other tradition of built environment had to be limited to just a sing single snapshot, then that particular choice of subject for it was a stroke of genius because it succeeded in fascinating generations of young Americans and making them want to know more. Yet at the time, there was virtually no way of finding out more, short of learning Russian and actually going there, both difficult. Uh, there was a bare handful of resources on Russian architecture available in English, and they focused mainly on Russian art, giving only secondary attention to the buildings. Still, they expanded our repertory of the distinctive contours, functions, and stories of Russian architecture, somewhat beyond the two structures already familiar to us from Red Square in Moscow. It would appear that the life's project of our featured speaker today, Professor William Kraft Brumfield of Tulane University in New Orleans, has been to fill that gap and, uh, in America's and the world's knowledge of a brilliant architectural heritage that is well over a thousand years old, and much older than that if we, uh, if we count backwards from Russia. Uh, in an academic career spanning very nearly the same past five decades, Professor Brumfield has delivered countless public lectures throughout North America and worldwide, authored many hundreds of articles, 
and written over 40 books on the subject, including a half dozen thick tomes based on extensive research and field work. Altogether, a cum uh, cumulative 13 years, if strung end to end, spent in Russia doing field work uh, on the subject. Uh, those thick tomes include Golden Azure, 1,000 Years of Russian Architecture, The Origins of Modernism in Russian Architecture, shifting forward to the late 19th, early 20th century, Landmarks of Russian Architecture, Lost Russia, Photographing the Ruins of Russian Architecture, his definitive History of Russian Architecture, the second edition of which was published by the University of Washington Press, and most recently, Architecture at the End of the Earth, Photographing the Russian North, about which he'll speak to us today. Thanks to Professor Brumfield's work, we now have a true wealth of reliable information available to us, and a major world tradition that used to be uh, obscure is now accessible. The significance of Professor Brumfield's work has been recognized in Russia with its induction over 10 years ago into the Russian Academy of Architecture and Construction Sciences and as a full, as a full member, and his membership in the Russian Academy of Arts. In both the US and Russia, he's been recognized with numerous other high distinctions from a Guggenheim Fellowship uh, here to the equivalent in Russia of the United States National Medal of Arts. Today, he'll be speaking to us about the subject of his most recent book, Architecture at the End of the Earth, Photographing the Russian North. So please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Professor William Brunsfield. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back to this wonderful campus. And I'd like to begin by showing you the uh, architectural archive that we have managed to create at the University of Washington and I would like to acknowledge the support of the National Endowment for the Humanities in providing a major grant uh, but particularly I'd like to acknowledge the support uh, of Dean Betsy Wilson uh, Dean and uh, head of the University of Washington's magnificent library system uh, without her unflagging support mm -hmm. Uh, the NEH project, which led to the creation of this site, which has almost 30,000 images on it. Uh, without that support, this project would not have occurred. So I recommend the site highly to all of you, recommend that you explore it. Um, there is much here to explore. There are various um, uh, uh, ways of entering the, the system, including an interactive map uh, with um, little dots. If you had all of my collection here, and maybe someday there will be all of my collection, particularly the entire map would be dark with dots. Uh, but this is what they've managed to put in so far, and uh, 30,000, uh, or almost 30,000, that's, that's not bad. Um, so I recommend this splendid site, and in fact this event today is meant to be something of a celebration of the many years of effort that we have uh, put into this project. And, of course, I would like to thank uh, Michael Biggins. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, James West, professor of uh, Slavic at the um, University of Washington. Uh, there's so many uh, colleagues here who have, through uh, often arduous efforts, have made this project a reality. And it's for you. After all, it was sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities. This is your project. 
and uh, through the University of Washington and the superb resources that you have here. Uh, again, my sincere, profound gratitude uh, to Dean Wilson for the support over the years, and it has been the years. I think it took us, well, I remember the pilot project began in the early 2000s, and then when Katrina hit New Orleans, I happened to be in Moscow, ready to get back on the plane. Our semester was beginning. It was the very end of August. I remember, what did the headline in the New York Times say? Big, easy, spared. Big, easy, dodges the bullet. Was the hurricane went to the east. And then the nightmare began the next day, as you probably remember, when the levees broke. And that agony that my city endured continued for months. But thank God, due to the generosity of other universities, Tulane students were able to study tuition-free all over this country. There were probably some of them here at the University of Washington. And we reopened Tulane University in January of 2006. We came back. But support of the University of Washington, I remember this was our third attempt to get NEH funding, and the first question the referees of the funding asked, did Brumfield's collection survive? Unfortunately, my work was on the third floor of Newcomb Hall, a splendid monument in the Tulane campus. And when I was able to get back in that office and open my office door a few months later, it was like opening Tutankhamun's tomb. Nothing had been disturbed. All I saw was a thick layer of dust on my desk. So, the project had been preserved, the originals had been preserved, we got the grant the following year from NEH, and University of Washington colleagues over the next decade persevered through enormous technical challenges to produce this site. And I would just like to let you know what an extraordinary accomplishment that has been. So thank you, Michael, if you will accept that, uh, thanks for all the various people here at uh, Washington who, uh, who have contributed to this project. You know who they are, I know who they are. And I think we have done a splendid and wonderful and remarkable thing. Now there are other sites that also feature my work, and they are also available to you. Uh, you can probably see the URL. Just go to the University of Washington Libraries. You can, you can find it. Uh, in fact, we've given on the, on the program there, on the final page of the program, there should be the address to um, the UW site. Uh, there are also a couple of other addresses. This is my main Russian site, created by colleagues, brilliant colleagues. Um, at the city of Volga in the Russian north. It's located right here. This is the uh, main page of the site. Well, let's see, we have to get back to it. Uh, the main page is, is right here, and that's the URL that you have on the back. But the, the heart of the site is right here, the photographic archive. Now you say, well, it's in Russian. Well, just press English. There it is, a bilingual site with 32,000 photographs. Toward the end of the year, we expect there to be 40,000 photographs on this site. It has less information than the UW site, but it is a dream to use, and we are going to uh, use it very, very shortly. 
So this, the information, the, the, uh, the site address is also on page four uh, of the, uh, the uh, program that you receive today. Now, why is all of this important? There is a wealth of information in Russia that we need to see in order to make connections. For example, if we go to a little town called Veliki Ustyug, it's not so little, about 30,000 people. It's in the northern part of Vologda province. Uh, it's had its share of problems during the vicissitudes of the 20th century and the various upheavals. But there is a monastery right across the Sukhana River. Uh, we can see sort of the main church. And this gives some examples of how the Vologda site works. This is your middle site, remember, it's in English as well as Russian. And we can go here full screen. That's the late 17th century cathedral built at that monastery, dedicated to the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. Now, well, it's beautiful in the winter. It has five cupolas at the top, but essentially it's a cuboid structure. Uh, but when you step inside, when you step inside, suddenly, you are in a world of such extraordinarily delicate and intricate work that one imagine how could this exist in the Russian North, particularly the great icon screen. There it is. It's in three parts, the most complex icon screen, I would argue, in all of Russia. Miraculously, it survived. Miraculously, it was created. And the style, when one looks at it, is absolutely that of the Catholic counter-revelation. Although this is the Russian Orthodox North, how did this happen? How did this square church contain one of the major works, I would argue, of 18th century Baroque in Europe? Now, there are specialists, and some of them have been to Lane, who talk about the Baroque and peripheral areas of Latin America. But I see the same peripheral influence in the Russian North. We need to talk about this. How does the periphery elaborate on motifs and styles that are enunciated in places such as Prague, Vienna, and other parts of 17th century Western Europe. What connections do we draw? Well, of course, the influence of St. Petersburg, we could say. But even in St. Petersburg, there is not an iconostasis like this. We should be asking these questions that connect cultures and connect research of art historians in ways that seem very distant and remote from Russia. But until we see the evidence, we don't even know what questions to ask. So that is the, I think, primary purpose, or one of the, the main purposes, from a scholarly point of view, of the work that we've done at the University of Wisconsin and in Russia in making these extraordinary images available for people to study. If we want to go to other examples of uh, the carpentry, the carving, the painting, the painting is absolutely 
imitation of imitation of Raphael. It is academic Western painting. Now, all of the, the forms, the tropes, this is taken from what the Academy taught in St. Petersburg. It is a filtering of the Western uh, system of rendering the religious heritage of the Christian world. Uh, but how this gets to the Russian North and in such extraordinary forms, which cross cultural boundaries, meld cultural boundaries, that is something we need to see. And I can tell you again, it is a miracle not only that this icon screen was created, but that it is still there. There have been so many other cases where icon, icon screens of similar lavish display have been destroyed. For that, we can go back to the small town of Totma in Vologda province, and you can navigate with me. You can see how this uh, site, uh, we're back to the Russian, I think, but uh, I'll get you back to English in just a minute. Uh, what we want to do is focus not on the language, but on the visual evidence. And there's a church called the Entry of Christ into Jerusalem, one of the great monuments. Let's go to English here one of the great monuments of Russian northern architecture. It was built in two stages, and it was built on American money in the 18th century by entrepreneurs from this town who were making their money off the shore of Alaska. The Russian-American company, Totma, was one of the places that originated that company. All right, so you can say American money built this church, American resources. And there we go up to the top, and we see the splendid design. But if we go on the inside of this church, what do we see? Instead of the remarkable icon screen that we had seen uh, in the previous church, we see bare and ruined choirs. All of this icon screen was smashed during the Soviet period. After the war, they put a vodka bottling factory in this church, Vinny Zabot. There is the, there you see where the floor was. They put the bottling machinery up on the upper part. There is a small part of the icon screen left at the very top, top the eye of God. A little bit of the 19th century painting. What do we have here? Seems to be the Annunciation, but I'll have to see more carefully. Otherwise, that is a typical example. Why do we have this preserved in Religious Jew? It's a mystery, but it is preserved. It is a miracle. We need to know about it. We need to share it, and we need to connect it with similar phenomena elsewhere in the Christian world, including and especially Latin America. Now, the archival work that we've done, I think, is uh, its in, in significance is essential. But in some ways, it is absolutely imperative. Here is an article that I published in Russia Beyond the Headlines, and I think you also have that address in your program on the fourth page. They've been having some technical problems recently, so let's see if this will open. It's a slideshow on the northern uh, ensemble at Lidini, thank God, God be praised, it opens. Um, there we are. 
a group of 18th century churches. These photographs that I took in the winter, sometimes these extreme winter conditions give the best view of the churches. There's the village slumbering under the snow. It's a hard life there. This is in the summer. The exterior is extraordinarily This church of the intercession of the Mother of God. Over here, late 18th, this is middle uh, 18th century. Over here, you have your late 18th century so-called winter church, which is more easily heated, used for the winter. These are wealthy northern peasant communities, uh, could afford this. Um, the church of the Epiphany over to the right. But here is the church of the intercession, that tall tent tower. Let's go inside. This is the lower church. You can see it covered with hoarfrost, a few icons left. But we go upstairs, the remarkable purity of the structure. And we turn from this clean style, and we see this extraordinary icon screen. Many of the icons are missing, but up above we see a painted ceiling, a painted heaven, with the renditions of the crucifix of Jerusalem, with the eight archangels, Michael, Gabriel, Uriel, Raphael, and four more. The four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This unique art painted by icon painters who were active in Kargopol, probably a school from the northern uh, area of Arkhangelsk. This extraordinary work. Where is it today? I want to show you a YouTube video. A month after this article was published, a month to the day, May the 5th, 2013, Russian Easter morning, a driving rainstorm, thunder, lightning, and someone happened to be passing by early in the morning with a dash cam on the car. This is what they saw. Do we have sound? You can see the windshield wipers. Driving rain. Something is burning. Electrical storm, lightning. It's pouring. A fire in the midst of a pouring rain. Closer and closer. These churches, this church, is burning. How could this happen? How could this happen? There was a lightning rod there. But specialists say lightning rods can be largely a fiction. They don't protect anything. The lightning hit the 
the top of the structure. It was a driving rain. But remember, these structures were well made. They were dry inside. Furthermore, as we've seen, they were covered with oil paints. The fire was so intense that the bell tower began to combust. The bell tower was not hit by lightning. It began to combust from the heat of the flame. Finally, the little fire truck, you can hear them calling right now for water. Wada! The fire truck comes up. All it could do was hose down the other ship, which was survived. Sure. There's the truck right there. You see the fire truck? There's the bell tower. Thus we see the loss of one of the major monuments of Russian culture. Not just the Russian North, but Russian culture. A monument of federal significance. Памятник федерального значения. Gone. They could perhaps rebuild the structure, but they could never create what was inside. And that was already a rare example. But if we go to the, the site that I've just shown you, and we go back to the, now we go over to the Arkhangelsk province, and you can follow with me. We can go, again, let's go to the English. Kargopol region, Kargopol district, Ledini, we press on that. We go to the Church of the Intercession, and there we have hundreds of photographs that I took. Now, all of these photographs are dated, as they must be, 1998, 2014, 1999, down, 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 and here we see on the interior, and many of these photographs are on the UW site, through the time machine that is a photograph, we have the remaining evidence of what was and no longer exists. No longer exists. But we have dozens of photographs that I took of the interior. In the winter and summer of 1998, 1999, uh, as for the, the site of the church, well, that is what we have right there. And if you look carefully in one of these photographs, you can actually see the lightning rod among the ashes on the ground. This is why these archives are essential. First, to preserve what this culture created, and secondly, to engage the attention of specialists beyond who can connect Russian culture to other cultures whose origins and interpretations share so much and yet at the same time are so 
different, a part of the variety that makes our planet such a fascinating place to be. Now, organizations that have supported my work over the years. When I began photographing um, uh, during my tenure as, uh, not tenure, but during my period as assistant professor at Harvard University, we had to see that no one was documenting this architecture, that the photographs were remarkable, and decided to go into this area. The reaction of the colleagues was shock. Why do you want to do this? And of course, as assistant professors usually had to do in those days at Harvard, I had le left in a state of great tension and found a job. Anybody else reminds me of the vision of the Boris and Gleb Monastery in Tarzuk? Found a job at the dear old Tulane. And they're tolerant. They weren't worried about, were you conventional? Do you have the right to stand up and speak about Russian art? They didn't give me a a dozen reasons why I should not be doing something that I knew I could and should do. Or Tulane, just, well, stand up in front of your students and speak a little Russian. That's what we're hiring you to do. And then I created, through what one of my Russian colleagues has called the guerrilla war of Professor Brumfield. Strike quickly, stealthily, I created an enormous archive, but I could not have done it without the support that miraculously The National Gallery of Art, the curator of architecture at the Photographic Archives, now the Department of Image Collections. She's still there, God bless her. Um, and I am now, since 1985, the basic collection of my work has been at the uh, National Gallery of Art in the East Wing, it's available to scholars, the William, William Craft Brumfield, one of their featured photographers, as you can see, National Gallery of Art, featured photographers. What have they got here? They printed over 12,000 of my photographs. You can't imagine how important that was to me. I'd lost my darkroom when I left Harvard, scrambling around Tulane, finding this little closet, that little closet. Once the National Gallery of Art asked me, having seen a publication of mine in the magazine Historic Preservation, to uh, contribute uh, to their archive, uh, then all of my uh, concerns about printing were taken care of. And we can see one of the special features. The problem is, and this is where the University of Washington collection is so important, very little of my work has been actually placed on the, uh, the National Gallery of Art uh, archive. There are features you can see here, following views from a collection of nearly 55,000 photographs and digital images. It's much more than that now. So what we had was an institution that was willing to support my field work, was willing to uh, uh, print the film, in those days black and white film, when I came back from the field and preserved me from the fascinating but arduous and stinky work of darkroom developing. So that's the first place uh, that I would like to thank. Secondly, the Library of Congress. It's an extraordinary gift that the librarian, Dr. James Billington, uh, was, um, uh, knew the value of my work. He reviewed my first book, 1983, Golden Azure. He gave it a full page in Times Literary Supplement. He knew it. And when he became Librarian of Congress, he came up with a program called Meeting of Frontiers. The Russians move east, the Americans move west. It was sort of late 1990s feel-good project, a sponsorship of Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska. 
And uh, Dr. Millington appointed me the historian and photographer for this program. Our friendship became so close that he sent me to Siberia. <laughs> and not once, but several times. And it changed my career. Over a period of four years, thanks to the Library of Congress, uh, I took tens of thousands of photographs in the Urals, in Siberia, and the Far East. The basic part of that collection went to the National Gallery of Art, but a small part went to the Library of Congress, where you see here the William C. Brumfield Collection is now being part of its, uh, being entered into the new uh, form of the uh, Meeting of Frontiers project called World Digital Library. So this is another ally. Other dire director of American Councils for International Education, Dan Davidson. Now Blair Rubel, director of the Kennan Institute in Washington. These are people who got it, who understood what I was doing and why it was important. Academic structures might have been clueless or simply hamstrung, but thanks to the tolerance that's so much a part of New Orleans, and Tulane, and thanks to allies, and I would include Dean Wilson among those allies, University of Washington colleagues, this magnificent enterprise has been undertaken. There are other sites that we can use. The Temple's Rue site uh, also has a, a very good collection of my work. They work slowly. There are only about 1,500 images here. But what do we see? The very church that we were just talking about. Only recently have they posted these photographs. And there's a different set of metadata. Now, this site is only in Russian. But these sources do exist, uh, and they are there to provide us with the record of a great culture that we know so little about and need to know. We absolutely need to know more about that side of the world at a time when usually our discourse is limited to stereotypes and the miasma of political games, there are serious issues at stake, both for Russia and for our country, in knowing more about this culture. Uh, I could say much more about my field work, and perhaps there will be questions later that will allow us to examine and illuminate certain parts of uh, the work that I've done. But I would once again like to express my gratitude to the University of Washington for the collaborative support that they have given. And I think at this point, uh, I would uh, like to hear the comments, as would you, of um, a specialist from this area whose work in some way intersects with my own. Uh, and I think at this point, uh, I will hand the podium over to these colleagues, and then I'll be speaking to you again later during the question and answer. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll have time for audience questions later uh, for Professor Brumfield and for our four panelists. Um, but now I would like to introduce uh, the four uh, University of Washington and Seattle uh, discussants who will be talking about Russian architectural heritage from a variety of viewpoints uh, that map to the disciplines that each of them represents. Uh, 
the uh, four uh, local discussants, I'll begin with uh, uh, Christopher Campbell, who is chair of the Department of Urban Design and Planning at UW in the College of Built Environments. Uh, his research interests focus on the social aspects of placemaking and the intersection of built form, social behavior, and culture. And he has applied these ideas to studies of neighborhood in Los Angeles, Seattle, and Russia. Um, and also to investigations of historical trauma among indigenous populations and to the creation of community in high rises and other vertical environments. Next will be uh, Elena Campbell, who is Associate Professor of History at UW, where she teaches courses on the history of Imperial Russia, the history of St. Petersburg, Leningrad from 1703 to 1901, 1991, rather, uh, as well as seminars on the historiography and primary sources, uh, analysis of primary sources of Imperial Russia. Her book, The Muslim Question and Russian Imperial Govern Governance, published by Indiana University Press in 2015, examines how Imperial Russia dealt with its Muslim subjects in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Her next book uh, aims to, not yet published, uh, still in progress, aims to explore Russia's turn to the north uh, and the aspiration to establish itself as a northern empire in the late Tsarist era, 1860s to 1917. Ivan Derpich is assistant professor of art history at the University of Washington, where he teaches courses in late antique, Byzantine, and Western medieval art history with an emphasis on the art of Byzantium and the Eastern Orthodox world. His book, uh, Epigram, Art and Devotion in Later Byzantium, published by Cambridge University Press in 2016, explores the nexus of art, personal piety, and self-representation in the last centuries of Byzantium. He's received awards from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Gallery of Art, and Dumbarton Oaks, among other distinctions. And our first uh, discussant uh, speaking to us uh, will be Ellen Hurst, um, who received her PhD in art history from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in 2014. Her dissertation, Italians and the New Byzantium, Lombard and Venetian Architects in Muscovy, 1472 to 1539, argues that far from being derivative of Western models, Russian architecture of the early Muscovite period melded domestic and foreign traditions into an original monumental style deemed suitable for Muscovy's new role as self-styled successor to Byzantium. Since 2015, she has lived in Seattle where she works as an editor, freelance writer, and independent scholar. She's also taught art history uh, courses at Pacific Lutheran University and Shoreline Community College. So I'll ask uh, each of our discussants to the podium in succession, and beginning with Dr. Hurst. Thank you, Michael. Uh, thank you for organizing this wonderful event and for inviting me to be a part of it. Um, and of course, thanks to Professor Brumfield for his uh, wonderful research. Um, I thought I would speak briefly today about my research um, as an art historian of Renaissance art or the early modern world from the Western perspective and how Professor Brumfield's research 
enabled an outsider like myself to penetrate what would otherwise be um, a dauntingly impenetrable subject matter. Um, so I just thought I would start out by saying really my research is indebted to what Professor Brumfield has done. Um, and to rewind a little bit, um, to go back to my undergraduate days, when I was studying art history, I remember stumbling upon a reference in a book that said Italians had traveled to Moscow to help build palaces, churches, and fortifications at the Kremlin. And I thought, wow, that's so exciting, that's so cool, I want to learn more about this. But being a, not a native speaker of Russian, having a very limited grasp of Russian, this proved a challenge. So I was frustrated when I continued my research. I found that obviously there was a lot of literature in Russian, which I would have to kind of put on the back shelf um, for my graduate days when I had a better grasp of Russian. But I did stumble across Professor Brumfield's wonderful history of Russian architecture, which became something of a Bible for me um, and really provided a foundational education of Russian architecture. Um, it provided me with a sense of the Russian terminology for architecture, which so many of the other English language sources did not do. They used Italianate or other Western uh, language. So it gave me that sort of foundation. It gave me a wealth of photographs to look through um, in the absence of actually traveling to Russia and scouting out all of these churches. I was able to look at photographs and get a sense of the aesthetic uh, of these churches and obviously the plans as well. Uh, but perhaps more importantly, there was the, his research is so thorough that it um, gave me leads to pursue later on. I had some English language sources, I had Italian which I could handle, and then I had a wealth of Russian sources that again, I sort of put on the back shelf for my graduate studies. Um, so this enabled me to do what I did in graduate school, which um, my goal with my research, my goals were sort of twofold. I wanted to understand how Italian architects influenced or changed the appearance of Rus Russian architecture, if at all, uh, during the early modern period. And I also wanted to get a better sense of the Italian Renaissance or the early modern period to understand the permeability of borders, um, the ability of artists and architects to transfer their skills across borders. Um, so his work really enabled me to do that. And um, I, you know, I wanted to just say that what he has done is not only given us a greater knowledge of the architecture of Russia, but indirectly through research such as my own, it has allowed us to get a better sense of the West as well. And you know, this sort of interdisciplinary approach, um, I think, has really opened up um, study of art history. And there's potential, obviously, as we'll hear from our other discussants, Later, there's a potential to learn um, so much in these other disciplines as well. Um, and I just wanted to conclude today by saying, you know, I, I have a, a goal of researching Baroque architecture down the line and seeing, you know, is there a transference of um, style in the other direction, right? Was Russian architecture indirectly or directly influencing the art and architecture of the West? So I'm sure your books have 
all kinds of information and photographs of Baroque and later Russian architecture, and I would love to pursue that. So again, I guess as, as a, in closing, I'll say that, um, you know, a thank you to Professor Brumfield, and um, there's a lot, I think, that, that remains to be done with this work. So thank you. So I would like to begin by thanking Professor uh, Brumfield for a very inspiring presentation and also by congratulating him for all the amazing work that he's been doing. I would also like to thank the organizers, in particular uh, Michael Biggins, for inviting me to participate uh, in this event. Now, I'm a Byzantinist and my interests uh, lie primarily in the um, Greek Middle Ages and the connections between uh, Byzantium and the Slavic, uh, Slavic world. Now, many Byzantinists uh, think, or rather like to think about Imperial Russia as a kind of Byzance après Byzance, or Byzantium after Byzantium. Um, and uh, although I find this notion deeply problematic, um, it cannot be denied that the Byzantine heritage played a fundamental role in the visual culture of Russian Orthodoxy in the uh, later Middle Ages and the early modern period and also uh, beyond. Uh, the Byzantine element is perhaps most evident uh, in the domain of painting. And since painting is my uh, one of my primary interests, I would like to say a few words about um, uh, the uh, important collection of photographs documenting wall paintings in uh, Professor uh, Brumfield's uh, archive established here at uh, UW. Uh, the archive, as you have uh, already seen, focuses on uh, architecture, but it also contains a huge amount of images of uh, wall paintings, uh, frescoes, decorated church interiors, more precisely about 800 uh, images. Now, uh, a couple of days ago, Michael Biggins has reminded me that the archive is in this respect much, much richer uh, than, uh, for instance, Art Store. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with it, Art Store is a digital library that includes over two million images of works of art and architecture from around the globe. Uh, it is a major online resource, resource for research and teaching. My colleagues, uh, myself, uh, we use it on a regular, uh, regular basis. Now, if you were to do a search on Art Store, uh, looking for Russian frescoes, you would find about 40 images. Um, that's pretty much all that they have to offer. Now, digital archives such as Art Store are telling insofar as they reflect certain biases in art history. Uh, they make it uh, clear which cultures and which periods are privileged, considered part of the canon, uh, and which are regarded as less important or uh, marginal. 
So I think that on a very basic level, the um, artworks documented in Professor uh, uh, Brumfield's uh, archive are uh, important uh, and that the archive itself represents a really uh, substantial contribution to expanding our uh, perspectives on, uh, on art uh, history. But there is another element that I would like to talk briefly about, and it really concerns the usefulness of such a digital collections as a research, uh, as a research uh, a tool. Uh, this past fall, in November, I organized a conference at Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, DC. And Dumbarton Oaks is, a, is a, uh, one of the major world centers for the study of Byzantine art. And the subject of this conference was the monumental painting of the Byzantine world understood broadly, essentially, as the world of Eastern Orthodoxy. And this was a great occasion to really think about the, uh, the state of the field, to reflect uh, about the field from a number of different uh, perspectives, uh, including uh, the, um, the current state of the field in this country uh, in particular. And well, many colleagues agreed that the field has been largely uh, marginalized. Uh, Byzantine art history is thriving in the United States. Uh, uh, there are excellent studies of things like icons, manuscripts, other kinds of portable uh, objects. But overall, uh, wall painting as, a as an area of research have been, have been really uh, marginal to uh, other, compared to other, uh, other areas of inquiries. And we were thinking really about what might be the reason uh, for this. I personally think that part of the problem lies in, 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 uh, in, uh, in difficulties of access uh, to the material. Uh, to work on monumental painting requires extensive travel, field work, uh, access to places that are uh, very often uh, far, that are difficult to get to. Uh, so uh, there are considerable challenges. It's simply much easier to work in museum or library settings than uh, in the field. Uh, this problem is also compounded, I, I feel, by the lack of adequate uh, documentation. Too many painted programs remain uh, unpublished or uh, insufficiently documented. And uh, uh, when uh, you consider the challenge of really documenting and publishing a, a painted church interior, um, uh, one of the things that, uh, uh, for, to my mind at least, seems obvious is that some of the traditional methods uh, appear uh, inadequate. Uh, traditionally, scholars would publish painted ensembles in monographs, in book format, which allow relatively little space for extensive document, documentation. But fresco ensembles are very often extremely rich and extremely complex. And so uh, 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 one of the things that I feel is, uh, is uh, uh, a much needed uh, work is uh, uh, the use of different digital technologies to uh, document uh, to document works of, uh, of, wall, uh, of wall painting. We are now uh, uh, witnessing the rapid expansion of digital 
technologies and we have a variety of tools and methods on our disposal that we could use uh, to uh, better document uh, and present wall paintings. Now it's interesting that the rise of the digital humanities um, has been um, uh, very important for a number of uh, 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 areas of research and art history and other uh, adjacent disciplines. But there has been little attempt so far to integrate digital tools in the study of the wall painting of uh, the uh, uh, Eastern uh, Orthodox uh, world. Uh, and yet the uh, uh, examples of uh, digital projects that we have show how this uh, work can be can be useful. And I will, I will give you just one example. Um, I myself am, am, am Serbian, um, and um, uh, I have been um, profiting enormously from the work done by a group of essentially amateur enthusiasts based in San Francisco who decided to put together an archive of digital images documenting Serbian medieval monuments. Uh, they uh, established uh, what they call the Blago Fund, Blago, B-L-A-G-O. In Serbian, it means treasure. Uh, and you can visit their website, I would encourage you. The Blago Fund is an amazing resource, extremely, extremely rich. Not put together, I should add, according to necessarily scholarly standards, but it's extremely useful because it simply made available an enormous amount of material uh, to scholars. And the impact of this website has been uh, uh, noticeable. Uh, people who do not necessarily have access to these uh, monuments uh, now can browse uh, through the website and uh, have access to an extremely rich uh, visual tradition. Now, I don't want to sort of claim uh, that or suggest that uh, instead of visiting monuments, we should be browsing on the internet and looking at digital archives. Of course, this first-hand experience uh, cannot be replaced. But uh, uh, there are uh, digital tools uh, that, can ex uh, that can help us enormously to uh, document uh, the monuments that we study and also to forward uh, our research and make it more visible and more, e more easily accessible to, uh, to uh, uh, scholars uh, uh, working in uh, perhaps neighboring, neighboring fields. I would like to make one final point um, about the manner in which uh, Russian uh, wall paintings are presented in Professor Bromfield's uh, archive. When I teach uh, Byzantine art, I always assign my students um, uh, expert excerpts sorry, from a seminal book uh, by the Viennese art historian Otto Demus. Uh, this is a Byzantine mosaic decoration uh, which he published uh, uh, nearly 70 years ago in uh, 19. Uh, 48, and it's one of the foundational works in uh, my discipline, uh, important precisely because it, it lays out some conceptual frameworks uh, of, uh, 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 with regard to how we think about a painted church as a system. 
Uh, now, one of the concepts that he offers in this work is the, this idea of icons in space. Uh, and by this notion of icons in space, uh, Demos is really referring to the nature of monumental images that adorn Byzantine and Russian um, uh, churches. Um, uh, these images uh, encompass the space in front of them. Uh, they do not create an illusion of space behind the picture plane, as uh, is the case with, for instance, the Renaissance uh, picture, but rather they project into and they activate the real space occupied by the viewer. Put differently, to understand and fully appreciate the monumental image, one really has to consider it as part of a spatial environment. Professor Brumfield's photographs of Russian frescoes are wonderfully evocative precisely because they capture the spatial qualities of these works. Thank you. Good afternoon. And I would like also to thank Michael Wiggins for organizing this interesting event, for inviting me. I would like to thank uh, Professor Brumfield as a historian and as someone who was born and raised in the Russian North and being more exact in the Arhangelsk province on the coast of the White Sea. I appreciate very much your efforts um, to create an archive of the images of um, buildings in the Russian North. And I would like to say a few words about the Russian North, which is not only my homeland, but also focus of my uh, book project. So the Russian North is a geographic location. It's the region located north of the 60th parallel, stretching between the border of Russia with Norway to the Ural Mountains. But it's also an idea or a set of ideas. The region, in other words, is a product of historical development and of imagination. So the vision of the Russian North as a preserve of ancient culture emerged in the late 19th century in a context of state-driven modernization Development of nationalistic sentiment and imperial ambition, intensifying inter-imperial rivalry, and growing European fascination with the circumpolar north. It was during this time that many educated Russians visited the Russian north and searched for Russia's ancient culture. Russian ethnographers, for example, discovered living epic tradition in the Russian north Artists went to the north to depict its nature as well as its wooden architecture. And I see Professor Brumfeld's um, project uh, very much as a continuation of this tradition. In fact, um, I was, it was interesting for me to read uh, Professor Brumfeld's book on the architecture of the Russian north and noticing um, his note on his visit of the city of Selvichogotsk uh, where, as he mentioned, he felt to be transported into the 19th century. So Russian artists who visited the Russian North in the 19th century sought to reconnect with Russia's more distant past. 
for example, a famous Russian artist, Vasily Verishagin, who in 1894 traveled on the river Severna Dvina and visited many Russian uh, cities and villages in uh, Vologda and Arkhangelsk province, um, felt that he sometimes was transported into the 17th century. So Russian artists began at the, during this time period describing and depicting Russian uh, ancient wooden churches, which they saw as um, extremely valuable architectural monuments. And thus, they raised the problem of their restoration and uh, preservation. They were also quite frustrated to see not only the decay of many of these wooden churches, but also the negligence that they discovered among the local population and the priests. The North, however, was more than just Russia's cultural preserve. While the North was conceptualized in late 19th century as Russia's native land, it was home not only to the Orthodox Russians, but also to old believers, Sami, Komi, Karelians, and Nenets communities. Russians, uh, local Pamors, developed trade relations with Norway. Foreign business played an important role in lumber industry. While the city of Arkhangelsk, even in the 19th, early 20th century, still appeared as a German city to many of its visitors. So the city, the region was on the edge of the earth, but it was not completely isolated, not from the rest of the empire and from the larger world. Yet in the late 19th century, uh, the Russian North was a periphery, was an imperial periphery, which many educated visitors, Russian visitors, um, saw as an economically backward region, which was not fully, as they believed, integrated into the imperial state. At the same time, some educated Russians began reimagining the Russian North with its, uh, what seemed to them, abundant natural resources, uh, and with its exit to the Arctic Ocean as a land of the future. These enthusiasts, that's how I call this, and, uh, people who wrote about the Russian North and with a lot of optimism about its future development, um, advocated region's economic development and modernization, which they believed promised to bring prosperity to the rest of the empire, as well as to establish Russia as a dominant imperial power, which, as they hoped, would dominate world markets. So during World War I, and again later during World War II, the Russian North provided a vital link between Russia and later the Soviet Union and its allies. In 1930s, the North experienced rapid industrialization. Its development generated enthusiasm and even optimism, but also caused tremendous suffering for many prisoners of the forced labor camps, which were located in the Russian North. However, another dimension of um, Soviet industrialization, modernization in the Russian North was a growing concern for historic preservation of the North's wooden architecture. After World War II, two large open-air museums were created and opened to the public in the Russian North, one located in Kizhi, uh, and another one opened in 1968 uh, in Arkhangelsk province, there's not far from Arkhangelsk, uh, Mali Kareli. The Russian North, with its military bases, submarine fleet, 
and closed cities was the critical region for Soviet security during the Cold War period. Today, the North is again on the political agenda of Russia. Russia is the northern country, President Putin declared at the first International Arctic Forum that took place in Moscow in 2010. Yet, uh, Russia's Nordicity has never been as unproblematic as it has been presented by Russian political leaders. While at times some Russians have celebrated the country's northern identity, um, at other times the north has been viewed by many as a barren and even hopeless land. So throughout history, the moments of enthusiasm for the north um, sometimes were followed by periods of neglect and marginalization of Russian northern periphery. So today we're living through a moment of growing enthusiasm for the North, and we'll see what this enthusiasm will bring to the country, to the world, and also, first of all, to the residents of the Russian North. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. We shall see is a great theme for me because I'm an urban planner and thinking about the future is what planners are supposed to be doing. So we shall see is my business. Um, I want to thank everybody. I want to thank um, um, folks for inviting me here uh, as well. Um, my name is Christopher Campbell. I'm the chair of the Department of Urban Design and Planning. I want to make it very clear up front that I'm not a historian. I'm not an architect planner who happens to have gone to Russia several times and made um, many collegial connections with Russian planners and have been involved to some, to some extent in thinking about the future of, of city planning in Russia. Um, it's really, it's, it's very exciting to, to see this archive and, and I do want to point out that as, as important as this archive is for our American scholars, I also know that it's equally as important for our Russian scholars, and we saw a number of the websites that are, that are in, in Russian um, archives. The faculty that I work with um, begin their training as, as professional architects and as professional planners by returning to these, old, these older forms and these older structures. Um, it's part of the way of thinking about the idea of Russia. We talked about the idea of the North, but for an architect, the idea of what it means to be a Russian architect begins with these sorts of structures and these sorts of forms. So it's immensely important for the future to preserve these, um, these, these images as well. All right, I'm not going to do this whole thing because we don't have a whole lot of time. Um, and actually, I have a teenager waiting for me for a ride. So I need to, uh, I want to highlight a few things here. But the, the, uh, the theme that I would like to touch on that, that a lot of Russian planners are thinking about is how to incorporate the past into the future. Um, one way to do that is to preserve the past through technology as, as we've done here, or to preserve the past in terms of uh, museums and, and, and monuments and things of that sort. But um, in the same sort of way that Americans are struggling with the preservation of the past as we move forward in, our, in, in developing new cities, Russians are struggling with this as well. The photos that I have today are from Krasnoyarsk, which is a city I've been to several times for various reasons. Um, there it is. 
Um, and the, um, the past is, is woven throughout the city, just as it is in, in most um, Russian cities of this sort. I'm going to assume you know where, here's where Krasnoyarsk is, in case you wonder. It's right in the middle, at the bottom there. It's not in the far north. But uh, you can see there's a, the past and the future are, are woven together or are laid out side by side in the city as it often is with a variety of traditional forms of architecture. Um, and by the way, I don't think any of these photos are going to make it into an archive. Nobody is going to take my photos and do what we've done with Professor Brumfield. Um, but you can see that uh, a different sort of past is at the bottom of the photo. Here's an easier way to see it in the cold winter of the, of the wooden houses and things of this sort. And um, they're, they're beautiful in, in many ways. And Americans, when they travel to cities of, of this sort, are impressed by this kind of architecture and say, why shouldn't this be preserved? Wouldn't everybody want this? And the answer from the Russian planners is, no, of course not. It's the first thing we want to get rid of. And so in planning for the future of Russian cities, often it's these whole neighborhoods of, of wooden uh, buildings that are first on the block for removal. We have, older, we have other styles that are, are uh, also um, now getting older and in some ways becoming their own sort of, his, having their own historical value. This is a traditional um, neighborhood as we would call it in the US, um, in Russia. Um, this is where faculty live. So this is middle class housing and people who are familiar with Russia are familiar with that as well. Preservation is one way that we deal with the past in Russia, just as in America. And, and here, for example, is um, drawings. This is at an uh, architectural school in, um, at the university where I, I visit. And you can see that the student's education starts with a, an appreciation for the, for the past, for the Russian styles, um, and for interpretations of that. These are hand-drawn by students. They're actually very good. They're much better than our students. There are none in this room, I don't think. Um, really pretty extraordinary. But at the same time, here's other, other forms of the past that are trying to be preserved. A beautiful Russian um, uh, example of a Russian um, you know, wooden architecture log. This is not the log cabin that Abe Lincoln was built in, but uh, it is nonetheless made of logs with um, you know, just extraordinary finishes to it. The detailing in, in uh, a structure of this of this sort is, is just amazing. And the question is, that how do, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? It, it doesn't last on its own. It must be preserved. And it's more than just pre preserving the structure from the winters and the elements. It's preserving uh, the, the social meaning and the social function of these structures in the cities, which is not an easy thing to do. These are very expensive to maintain. Budgets are always very tight. And the question for Russian citizens is always, why bother? Why bother holding on to these? Why not tear them down and build something new, something, something more exciting? The question is, how do, we, how, do we, how do we locate these? What do we do when the city grows up around these structures and, and they lose their meaning, they lose their place within the urban fabric as the, the morphology of the city changes around them? This is not atypical. Um, you'll see a, this is a, a two-story um, timber house, log house, um, a beautiful, an absolutely beautiful example of, of this sort of um, architecture being overtaken by the buildings around it. There's some effort. If you're an architect, you would look maybe at the, at the facades of some of these. That there, there's some effort to try to respond to the, to the um, local uh, or the older styles, but 
that effort is not always successful. Another, another thing we do is we, we reuse and adapt. Um, we heard about reusing a church as a, a vodka factory. We don't want to do that. That's not a good idea. Um, but there's a challenge. How do you adapt these buildings that were built for a very different social structure to the modern age? Here we have Chick King. Where are you going to put Chick King? In a, in a building that was built for primarily for housing in an economy that didn't have room for um, businesses of this sort. And now this, uh, the economy, uh, the you know, capitalism or forms of capitalism are really beginning to, to emerge very strongly through Russia. How are we going to adapt our cities to this? This is a club that we spend a little bit of time at. Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors, very important, very uh, you know, and the thing is, it tastes delicious and it doesn't melt because you're in Russia, so you can eat it year-round. Um, this is a factory, Soviet-era factory, that was turned into a, into a mall. This is one of the first malls in the Siberia region with one of the first parking lots, in, so we're told. Um, without, a society without a lot of cars doesn't have a lot of room for parking lots. Now there's need for this. Um, a factory that is no longer useful for buildings, it used to be a television factory, has now turned into um, a mall. And if you walk in there, there's a beautiful shopping center and all sorts of things. What the Russian um, uh, architectural class wants to do, like, like architects everywhere, is not get stuck in the past, but innovate towards the future. And so you begin seeing new forms that are trying to echo in some ways some of these older forms. Some of them are more successful. Um, and, you, and you sort of can get a sense of, of this. Uh, others are less successful. Uh, this is fortunately not going to be built, um, but this is a student project. But you can see that there is a, a real desire to um, not get stuck in the past, um, but to, to be reaching forward. This was built, as you can see, um, this sort of postmodern structure. Not, again, not unusual um, throughout Russia. As in, I, think, I believe this is a, you can probably, I don't read Russian. That's uh, a movie theater. Oh, it's a casino, that's right, it's a casino, thank you. Oh, there it says right up there, I, can, I actually can read that because it says casino. Um, other forms, you know, I don't know what's going on here, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> But it's not, again, it's not unusual. Um, and, and there is a, uh, it, at least there was when I was traveling, and, and this time is, you know, this was taken three or four years ago, I think, built probably 10 years ago, um, a desire by local architects to really try to establish a new Russian, a new Russian form, a new Russian vocabulary, architectural vocabulary. And there's a struggle to find that vocabulary now. Um, you can see some of the detailing in here if, if, if you want. I, I like the, the vents coming up from the bottom. I'm not quite sure what that's about. But um, you, they're sometimes they're drawing on uh, international styles, and which again is uh, like um, cultures, any sort of um, great culture around the world are always being influenced by cultures from other parts of the world. And it's, it's certainly true here as well. Um, we're also seeing tremendous transformation of the Russian landscape. And again, this goes to you know, what is the role of the past? How do we, how do we uh, change it to adapt to the future? This, of course, is a, um, um, a very traditional, you know, we've all been to the dachas and the, the, the gardens, these sort of little garden communities. 
Uh, one of the nice things about these little garden communities is they're actually um, planted to some degree, which is to say everybody has a, a lot. One of the interesting things about Russian cities compared to American cities is they're not planted. There are no lot lines. And because there are no lot lines, you can't develop the same sort of codes that we use to uh, structure the, and to, to, uh, to influence the development of the city. You can't do it because it's all based off the lot line. Without a lot line, you can't do certain things. Here there actually are lot lines. And one of the things you can do is you can um, sell your lot to somebody else who can then, and we're beginning to see this throughout Russia, begin building houses. Um, single-family houses, and so we're beginning to see more and more of these new um, sort of exterior neighborhoods, um, suburbs, as, as one scholar called them, this is suburbia, um, sort of a, a new a new form based again on a very Western form, but with some sort of Russian detailing in the in the you know a little bit sort of uh, in the in the details of these homes. This is on the outskirts of Krasnoyarsk, and again, part of the problem is uh, it wasn't ever supposed to be this way, and so um, there are a lack of utilities. You can see some um, power lines there, but there's uh, not a good sewer system, and the roads aren't, aren't, aren't designed to support uh, a suburban development. Um, again, these, these sort of Western influences, um, here we are, you know, this is, the, this is the American dream in 1950, and here it is in, in Russia. Um, and you know one, one example of this, and, and we are beginning to see that. So again, this question of, of where does the past fit into the future, um, a question that all um, historic preservationists and, and planners in general are, are asking, asking ourselves. The cities are dynamic, they're changing constantly. Um, how, do we, how do we keep that past alive and not just turn it into more objects? This is, again, the outside of whole new area in Krasnoyarsk, and we're, we see this all over Russia, we see it all over China too, but we see it um, throughout Russia, these new apartment buildings, um, there's our old friend. Um, and, and you know, sometimes, I, I'm not sure, I think Professor uh, Brumfeld might have missed this particular church in his no. archive. I'll have to yeah, look. Yeah, yeah it's, it's coming, it's coming soon, okay. okay. So this is, this is um, but this is, this is one interpretation of the future. And how do we keep all of this alive? For a building to remain alive, it has to be more than just an object. We can preserve an object, but for it to really be alive, for it to be valued by this, the community that it, that it exists within, it has to have a social purpose. It has to be part of the fabric of the community. And I think that's part of the struggle often with, these, uh, with any old object, is how to maintain that connection to the community. Um, so that's where I'm going to leave it. I'm just going to leave it with some questions because we don't have the answers. We don't have them here. They don't have them in Russia. But this is a little bit about what's happening in the future. Thank you. Yeah, I'd just like to, in, in, in conclusion, thank all of the participants uh, who provided uh, very different and valuable perspectives on this. I do a lot of work in Krasnoyarsk. That's an Armenian church. And we should point out that Russia is a multi-confessional country. It says the Armenian churches as well as Orthodox, they're Catholic churches, they're synagogues. I have an entire site of my work devoted to Jewish monuments and memorials in Russia. Now that's also an important part of my, uh, of my work. I want to make that clear. I photograph Soviet architecture, Stalinist architecture, 
uh, all of these things are a part. And uh, what was fascinating about this Armenian church in Krasnoyarsk is when I was there two years ago photographing it, they had a sign uh, at the entrance. We thank our Russian brethren for supporting the resolution about the genocide in, uh, calling it genocide in Turkey. So these communities, these communities connect in very complicated ways. And the fact that this church exists for the Armenian community in Krasnoyarsk uh, is a multi-layered uh, presentation of identity that has so many ramifications. Uh, you know, Krasnoyarsk is a fascinating place, and I look forward to talking with you more about that. Yes. But thanks to all of the participants. I very much value your comments. Thank you so much. Um, we would like to invite everybody here to, in just a very few minutes, we would like to invite you all to join us, visit with Professor Bromfield and our four discussants and each other uh, at the reception, a kitted reception that we have at the back. But first, uh, we'd like to provide some time for questions. <laughs> yes, sir. Professor um, Bromfield, talking about 50,000 photographs, and talking about an archive of two million photographs and so on. Yes, thanks to information technology and repository platform. Sometimes when there is such copious amounts, especially of digital, it begins to lose spiritual perspective. I wonder if in your effort you have approached or the Church of Russia or any church has approached you to basically create some kind of parallel comment uh, to, the, to the archive that you've created. Because with all due respect, icons in the church, we don't call them paintings, we call them writings, uh, art. All of them, they are not called art. These are objects of worship. They are not art. So our points of reference in the church is very different from just pure digital planning, historic, or didactic, or whatever reference you want to, to, to call it. The point is just basically, is there a dialogue between you and anybody in the church about it? Oh yes, I'm, I'm working with a project uh, that has the close support of the Moscow Patriarchy. It's called Dalogi uh, Rassi. I, uh, I'm also a scholar, so that I document, and I want to share that documentation because it's taken place over many years. It's been very difficult and arduous work, and as we've seen here, uh, we need access to that material. Uh, but then, on the other hand, that's why books are important. Uh, with a book, you do have a focus. Uh, but again, it's a focus that deals, with, from my perspective, with space and with culture and with history. Uh, the church has its own uh, priorities. The parishioners and parishes and bishops uh, have their own emphasis, and sometimes that merges with uh, the work that I do and is very highly valued by them. But ultimately, it is for, for veneration and for worship. Um, uh, and uh, there are some sometimes rather complicated issues uh, involved in uh, the visual object as a work of art or a work of veneration. And I think one has to always define the context 
um, and be respectful of that context uh, from, from, both, from both sides. But it's an ongoing dialogue, no question about it, and it's, it's a very necessary dialogue. Well, it uh, there's some very interesting adventures involved with that, and I can tell you, um, uh, this is this is off the record, right? Whatever, <laughs> whatever. Uh, there are a lot of agents who got to see a lot of churches <laughs> in the course of following me. Yes. Uh, who knows, perhaps some of them were even converted to Russian Orthodoxy uh, back in the 1970s and 1980s because they were sure behind me uh, that I could see sometimes quite openly. And I always said cheerfully, uh, this is what I'm doing. I make no secret about it. Uh, I'm going to, it's not just churches, photographing other, other uh, objects. Um, but uh, I think it became clear that I was who I said I was. Uh, but it, uh, there were some interesting uh, moments, uh, particularly in the early 1980s, which was a very tense time uh, for various reasons. So um, ultimately, you just had to, uh, had, to, had to put up with it. But I'll tell you, Russian friends will go to the end of the earth uh, to take that title again. Uh, they, once, they, once they see what you're up to, once they develop that trust, then um, it is uh, an extraordinary engagement that allows you to get around some of the paranoia. But the paranoia is always there, on both sides. I can tell you that. The uh, timeline that uh, one of these churches took for construction, I mean, uh, we know in Western uh, cathedral building it took multi-generations sometimes to build these are extremely ornate constructions and the artistry and the, the uh, construction crews that would relate around that. Uh, can you tell us anything? Uh, well, sometimes the churches, the wooden churches would be very, built very quickly uh, in one season, one construction season. Uh, decorating them, painting them, uh, the icons, that's another level. But uh, you know, there would be master craftsmen who knew how to erect these very complicated structures, and the quicker you got the roof over it, the, the safer your structure was. Um, but some of them took uh, years, and you begin to wonder, why, why did this happen? Uh, for example, the church on the cover of my book. Uh, it's also in the, uh, the exhibit upstairs, the church of the Hadejetria icon in Kimsha. It took, took years. Well, it turns out, uh, so the, the subsequent research um, uh, posits uh, that this was an area of old believers and they weren't really interested in seeing that church completed. Uh, so it was begun in the early 18th century, but it was finally consecrated when you could get a priest there and hold services. And there's no point having a church if you, you don't have uh, someone to uh, conduct the liturgy. So there are various local factors that play into that. And for those of you who don't know the story behind the old belief, uh, that's a separate topic that keep us here a very long time. We, we've already had it introduced, um, uh, I believe by Professor Campbell, I believe mentioned uh, the, um, the old beliefs. Uh, they were a group of people who refused to accept reforms in the liturgy in the mid-1660s, and they were subjected to ferocious persecution, and many of them moved to the north to escape that uh, persecution. Uh, it's a fascinating story, and it's a story that continues in, on various levels in Russian culture in the 19th and 20th century. 
so uh, the building programs were sometimes complicated by factors that were not logical from our point of view. Uh, but uh, in terms of the enormous amounts of time used for the Gothic cathedrals, uh, you have to, the Russian structures were less ambitious uh, than those. The masonry structures sometimes could take uh, 10 or 15 years to build. Sometimes it was for financial reasons. But then was that church that I showed you in Totma, with that with, uh, the, it was turned into the vodka factory. The lower part of the church was built first, and then 20 years later, the upper part, as they got the money. These were, after all, merchants. They were practical. You build what you can use. Furthermore, those churches often had two levels of altars. The lower altar, which would be used in the winter, because you could eat it. And then the upper chart would be called the summer church, uh, which would be where the main altar is, and the splendid iconostasis. But you wouldn't heat that during the winter. And so there are all sorts of local uh, specifics that would work their way into the timelines of construction. And the final thing I would say is that so often we don't really know much about uh, when these churches were built. We're lucky if we have halfway reliable documentary evidence. Uh, that's, that's another huge uh, challenge. Uh, some of the major works of uh, 16th century Russian architecture. We don't really, to this point, we don't really know when they were built. And there are many arguments about um, whether the church of the decapitation of John the Baptist, which was built by Ivan the Terrible, whether it was built in the 1550s or the 1570s. Um, so that um, there's, there's always room for uh, debate and investigation, uh, but um, the main thing is it is an extraordinarily, intensely um, engaging culture that we need to know so much more about. And I think all of the speakers today, uh, all of the panelists have shown the ways in which we can engage with that tradition and that culture. Yes? Outside. Very, very rarely, very rarely. There are people who uh, have written monographs about uh, Russian Orthodox architecture abroad, and uh, particularly in Europe, uh, but it is not something that I have uh, devoted. Believe me, Russia takes enough time. Uh, it's, um, I just decided uh, that's, people often ask me, do you photograph in Alaska? No. Russia, Russia. Uh, that's, uh, you know, God grant me at least a few more years, and uh, uh, there's still gaps in that map. I mean, after all, why, why should I go to Paris or Rome when I still haven't been to uh, Sorbonne? Uh, you know, there are all sorts of places that uh, each fascinating, or Egypt, Egypt, where they make Kalashnikovs, has an extraordinary new cathedral I've never been there. Uh, could I get into the town that makes Kalashnikovs? I don't know. But uh, give me the opportunity and I'll try. Uh, so it's, it's just my project. It's what I do. I stay with Russia. Yes, sir. I remember my three professions. It's uh, our modern architecture. It presents the more remote Russian tradition. But I remember you showed one, the first uh, church inside. It's, uh, that's a very fantastic Baroque style. Uh, yes. 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 What's the motivation of building church on that side? We need to ask those questions. 
We absolutely need to ask those questions. In the 18th century, there was a proliferation of Baroque motifs, and we can say that Petersburg was the conduit, but actually some of these motifs began appearing in the late 17th century. Ukraine was a source for early Baroque motifs. But why we have this florid Baroque, and it is so Catholic. Everything about it is Catholic. The style of the carving, the motifs, the style of the painting, it comes from the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and yet there was no crypto-Catholic uh, message here. So I think uh, that is the question that I, I wish we would explore in greater detail. As I say, in, in other areas of the Baroque periphery, Peru, for example, Mexico, people are examining these questions because there's an equally elaborate art in those countries. It in many ways intersects with uh, Russian observances in folk traditions, by the way. Uh, but so far, that dialogue uh, has, not, uh, uh, has not occurred. Uh, perhaps maybe with more visual information and with the help of people such as yourselves and go to conferences and suggest questions, then we, then we can begin to address that issue uh, that uh, interests you and interests me. One more question, maybe? Mm -hmm. One more question? Yes. I was just wondering, when you go to these towns, is there a vibrant oral history about the churches that you photograph? And do you talk to people about what, how they understand the history? If there are people to talk to. Many places these villages have been depopulated. I mean, life in the Russian North is damn hard. The support systems have just vanished. And we had um, uh, one speaker, again, Professor Campbell, who said there are people who have just written the North off. Invest in the South of Russia. That's, that's where you're going to get your money back. Uh, and the North is perspective. Well, that's all about natural resources and uh, sh uh, Arctic shelf oil drilling and whatnot. The villages, it's catastrophic. It's not good. You can't live in a place that no longer supports a tolerable lifestyle. You can't keep your children there. So the demographic changes have been uh, profound in the Russian North. And in many cases, many of the monuments I photographed, you can't find anyone to talk to. And I'll tell you, when I was taking some of those winter photographs of the church at Ledini in 1998, I showed you those snow-covered houses in the village. You remember that? When I was taking those photographs, some of the, some of the villagers were walking, and they all work in a dairy barn. That's about, about all that's left there. If, as long as you can cut trees and milk cows, there will be people in some of these villages. All right? And they said to me, they sort of muttered, all right, you're photographing these things, but you have no idea how we live. I never forgot that. They don't see me as some sort of person preserving the culture. They say, it is really hard for us to survive. And anyone who doesn't understand that is, is lost the connection. So yes, in that same village, there's a little schoolroom that has actually little displays. It's very, it's touching, it's sincere, and it works. They're little, with Russian folk arts and weaving and whatnot. So the children who go to the school that still exists in that village can see something about their own culture. That's very important. But a lot of the uh, first place there are no longer local populations left because populations moved so fundamentally during the Soviet period. In second place, as many of the villages have been depopulated. So don't think that I'm showing you some idyllic 
repository of Russian values in the Russian North. It is extraordinarily beautiful, um, but there are many very complicated problems there that to a certain extent exist in other northern regions, northern Canada, for example. Um, but in Russia, it's because of this emotional resonance that you talked about. We're reluctant to let go of the fact that this is a vibrant culture, but in fact, um, it's a culture in so many areas. It's yeah, so we were left with photographs and artifacts. I, thank you. I hate to end on a minor note, but that, that is part of a very complex reality, too. Uh, and I, I think we can't overlook that. But I know there are many more questions in the audience. Uh, I want to encourage those of you who have them to uh, engage with Professor Brumfield and our other panelists over a bite to eat and, and a glass to drink. And please join us now. Thank you very much for coming today. Thank you.